Well, if you got your Bibles today, if you access those on your phone or however you get those, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. If you're not familiar with uh, accessing Scripture, most of the passages today will be on the screen behind me. Well, we are continuing this series called United. Last week, we, uh, we began this journey of, of understanding how we as humans kind of are born with this divisive nature. We, uh, we like to divide ourselves. We like to categorize ourselves by who we are and what we're about. And, you know, we meet somebody and we immediately see what's different about us than what is common about us. And last week, we pushed back on that idea a little bit and said, you know what? We need to begin to look at one another. And what Ephesians 1 taught us is that each one of us start with certain things in common. And if we start to live that way, that actually moves us toward unity. If all we do is ever do is elevate the diversity or the distinctiveness of who we are, eventually that's going to lead us to division. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't, you know, we try to act alike and everybody has to think alike, that we, you know, have to be one certain way doesn't mean that that at all, but it does mean that we need to begin the process of interacting with one another, knowing what we have in common. And we talked about things like last week that, you know, none of us are in more need than than anybody else. None of us start out better in this life than anybody else. None of us are more valuable to God than anybody else. Nobody is more deserving of God's love than anybody else. We all start on this same pathway at the same point. And today... We're going to move to chapter 2 and talk about really what ought to be one of the most unifying things, but is actually one of the most divisive things. And it's what we've been singing about. I don't know if you realize as you, we were going through almost every song focused around one person and one truth, and that is Jesus Christ. Now that name, for whatever reason, has become divisive in our culture. It's so funny. I we often, we have, you know, we have mission teams come in and we'll often send them to different parts of the city to, to learn about what's going on in neighborhoods. They, they do what we call narrative mapping where they go and ask people what it's like to live there and work there and, they, and the spiritual climate. And after they go through a number of questions, one of the questions is, you know, what is your view of Jesus or who do you, how do you believe Jesus relates to God? And it's so funny, the responses we get. Because we can ask them about their favorite restaurant in the neighborhood. We can ask them about churches or synagogues in the neighborhood. And people gladly talk. But as soon as we say, how do you believe Jesus relates to God? They're like, oh, I don't like to talk about that. And it's like, well, why why is that so divisive? And here's what it boils down to. And here's what we're going to focus on today. Is that what we do with Jesus, what we do with the what we believe is the revealed truth of who Jesus is in Scripture, it defines our life. It only just define us by a label of Christian, our follower of Christ. It defines our passions, our pursuits. It defines where we seek to go in life. Our whole perspective of life shifts, and it changes where we're thinking our outcome is going to be. And so Jesus changes us. Jesus is not somebody we can just rub shoulders with, somebody we are acquaintance with, somebody we say, yeah, I know what the Bible says about Jesus. Ephesians 2 is very clear about who Jesus was and what Jesus does, and is that he, when you encounter him, he transforms your life. He transforms it. He changes it. And I think this is one of the reasons that name is so divisive, because people 
know that. People realize that. They realize there is power. We sung that there is power in that name, and sometimes people don't want to think about it. They don't want to engage in that thought, and they said something I'll deal with later or just something I won't think about, and it won't impact me, and it creates this division. But what we're going to do today is talk about how actually that can be a very unifying thing. Because Jesus and what he did in this life did not do it for just some. He did not come to bring salvation for a few. He actually came to bring salvation for all of mankind. And what we're going to focus on today is this, what we talk about as shared inheritance that we get through Christ. It's this inheritance that you and I can both experience. Now, this is a point where we need to be careful in this series because I don't want us, as we talk about following Christ, to confuse, as I mentioned before, unity and uniformity. We start to talk about what God has in mind for us and how we experience his grace, mercy, and love. And it's very easy to believe that how God has dealt with me or you is how God will deal with everyone. All right, I, this what comes to my mind is like when people figure out how they want to diet and exercise. You can find any article that will tell you it's okay to eat any kind of food. Like I, I read, there was a there was a diet called the Twinkie Diet, where a guy literally just ate Twinkies and he lost weight because he just he gauged his calorie input. Now I'm not sure that was healthy. I'm sure if he did other tests on him, his heart might not be in good condition, but he was like, I can lose weight by doing nothing but eating Twinkies. And then you talk about exercising. And like there are a thousand different approaches to exercise. Like you should do, you know, high impact training. You should do all cardio. And then like every, you can find any article to tell you what you want to do. The truth is with diet and exercise, you find what works for you. You find how you interact, how your body interacts with what you eat and what you do and how what's best for you. In the same way with God, you and I can, ex- sometimes some of us love to experience God in quiet, contemplative ways. And we think that that's the way everybody else should experience God. Some of us love to experience God in loud, boisterous excitement. And we think if other people aren't doing that, they aren't serious about God either. And so we've got to be very careful to not take how God has dealt with you or with me and export that and copy and paste it onto somebody else because they're not you. God created them with uniqueness. God created them with a way, and he's dealing with their heart and drawing them toward him in a way that he's chosen. If you have children, you know this to be true. I have two children, PJ and Natalie, and I cannot deal with both of them the same way. Like with PJ, I cannot use sarcasm. Like I, there was a day I remember in sixth grade where he just told me, Dad, I hate it when you use sarcasm. Like you, and like I have the gift of sarcasm. Like that was my favorite thing. And I'm like, okay, like I commit. That, like I know I can't be sarcastic with PJ. When I do, it just, it hurts him. With Natalie, like I can't even hardly raise my voice. Like if I'm just like, Natalie, she's like, what did I tell you? She's just, I'm like, stop, you know, it's okay. I was just wondering where the remote control was, you know. It's, but she, we have to interact with them differently. God knows his children. He created you. He knows you by name. He knows every part of who you are. And he is working to draw you back to him. So we must be careful to remember that it is not up to us to determine how God interacts with us, but instead to respond to it, how he calls you. 
So what we're going to talk about today is is not just a, a set of circumstances or traditions or conditions that must happen in your life for you to experience the work of Christ, the inheritance of God. So I'm not going to sit here today and go, okay, you have to do this and then do this and then pray this, do this, take this step, and then you will experience the fullness of Christ's transforming work in your life because that's not the way it is. Those of us who are followers of Christ in this room, we could all stand up and tell the uniqueness of our journey to God, of being reconciled to God. There is unity in that. There's unity that it is found in Christ, but there is not uniformity. We didn't all grow up in church. It didn't all take godly parents. It didn't all take this moment where God just broke into our life. For some of us, it was a slow journey. For some of us, it was a, an immediate change in our life. We all see this. So how do we deal with beginning to experience this full life of pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope that God desires for us? Is through receiving this inheritance. Now, I use this word inheritance, so let's start with this idea. What is inheritance? Like, if you're like me, you hear this word, and the first thing that comes to my mind is, like, what I'm going to get when somebody dies, right? I mean, like, I, I remember when I was 16, my mom and dad, it was their 25th wedding anniversary, and they were taking a trip to California, and they sat my brother and I down at the dining room table, which was always, like, this serious moment. We never went to the dining room table unless somebody special was coming over or we had to talk about something serious, and so we sit down. We don't know. We thought we were in trouble. We thought, you know, what did we do? What did they find out about finally? All this kind of stuff. And, and my mom and dad set their last will and testament on the table. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? And they were like, you know, we're going on this trip. If something happens, we want you guys to understand what's going to happen. And they start going through this like, if something happened to your dad, you would get this amount of money. But if something happened to both of us at the same time, the money would double. And me and Jay were both like, yeah, you know, it's like so. Like if the plane goes down, just both of you go. No, uh, but you had this idea of like, what's it gonna? What am I gonna get? What are you gonna leave for me? I, I remember one time I was at my grandmother's, and she's passed away since then. But uh, at the time, she was in great health, and she was kind of laying a guilt trip on the grandkids of like, you guys don't come see me as much anymore. You're gonna be sad when I die and all that stuff. You know grandmother kind of stuff and uh so we were like we could joke with my grandmother pretty good so we said well you know what we'll go ahead and do it. we we took post-it notes and we started writing our name on things and putting it on things around our house so in case she died we we're like nanny i want this i want that and we were like and so she kind of got the point like okay we still love you but we we don't want your stuff we want you we were trying to make a point but that's what we think inheritance is it's something i'm going to get when somebody died but that is not at all what we're talking about here as a matter of fact, last week we saw in chapter 1 uh, a verse that describes what God means by inheritance. It'll be on your screen. It's verse 8. It says this. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, what he set forth in Christ. So the in Christ is the key part there. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and on earth, in him then we have obtained an inheritance. The inheritance that God wants for us is not something he's going to give us when we separate from him, when he dies or we die. The inheritance is uniting us with him through Christ. That's the inheritance. The inheritance is you and I, created by God, now separated by God from sin in our life, will be reunited with God, will be one with him. That's what the inheritance is. It's a relationship. 
It's a restored relationship. God has this gift for you. He has something he desires to share with you now and for all time. And that's what Ephesians 2 is all about. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, you know, why would I want this inheritance, this gift of God? Maybe you're sitting here and uh, I know many of us sitting have different views of God. You come from different spiritual backgrounds and some of you view God different than a loving father who has lavished his love and mercy and grace on us. Some of you view God as this angry man in the sky who's out to get us. Some of us are confused and skeptical and even angry. Some of you view God as distant and distracted, like he's not involved in who we are. And even others of us may even question the existence of God. And I want you to hear this is not abnormal. As a matter of fact, this is where we all begin our spiritual journeys. We all begin our spiritual journeys with a jaded and warped view of God. We don't begin at peace with God. Scripture teaches we actually begin as called enemies of God, at enmity with God. We're not connected, and we must be restored. We begin thinking of ourselves as God instead of him. And, you know, even though I grew up in church, I still dealt with this jaded view of, view of God. I grew up thinking that for me, I had to somehow prove myself to God for him to love me. I had to do something that he would notice. I had to do certain things to make him love me. And I want you to hear me clearly this morning. Your current view of God, no matter what it is, does not determine who God really is. Your view doesn't. God is who he is, not who we determine him to be. And this is good news. Because the way God has revealed himself is actually to be a good and gracious God. Not a God of anger and wrath. He is angry at sin. He's wrathful towards sin. But toward his creation, he has love and mercy and grace. And I want to take you on a little journey this morning in our last time together through Ephesians 2 that help us move from this lost aspect to where we're actually, where God has restored and redeemed us. Look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 2 with me, and it says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of of disobedience. I want you to see first, we start this journey with God lost. Each of us begins in the same point in our life lost. No matter how you come into this world, no matter what you come in with, what privileges or advantages you come in with, you're still lost. We all begin this journey spiritually lost. From the very beginning, we start out in a journey to find pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope, and we look in many different places. We have no map, we have no bearings, we're lost. Most of us don't like to think of ourselves as lost. We don't like to admit that we're lost. I hate admitting I'm lost in this city. I hate walking around and having to pull my phone out and actually pull up the subway map. I should know it by now. I should know, like, I shouldn't know where this one goes. I do not like to admit that I'm lost. I like to admit that I know everything and that I'm in control. And we like to do that spiritually as well. But we can't always figure everything out. And spiritually, this is so true. It says we were dead in our trespasses. It says we have this hopeless outlook. Right? We, if we're dead, there's not much hope in that. Death is kind of final, right? It's not that, that you're going to all of a sudden turn out of that. But we are hopeless. 
sin's this tricky thing because it looks good, it feels good, and it can even feel right. But in the end, all it leads to is death. It's this tricky thing, but it says we were dead in our trespasses. Then it says we kind of had these this fruitless mindset. With these We're just following the course of the world. Wherever the world leads, I'll go. I just follow. It's the way we're born, this lost mentality. I just follow the crowd. Wherever the crowd ends up going, I'm going to head that direction. It's that crowd mentality. I've done that in this city before. I'd be walking somewhere, and I'd like just following, having to follow who's in front of me, and I realize I'm two blocks past where I need to go just because I was following and not paying attention. But it also says that we are sons of disobedience, which means what we're doing is, is fruitless. We just start doing what everybody else is doing. Instead of looking outside for help, we try to look inside or around, and so we're completely lost. And that's a key thing to begin to understand because some of us in here, some of us who are far from God or still trying to figure out who God is, think that we have a hope inside of us. And I'm sorry to tell you that we don't. The only hope is found beyond us in the one who created us. And this is what we see next. Not if he was lost, then God has found us. And this is great news. God knew that we were lost and he came looking for us. He knew that we could not get ourselves out of this cycle of disobedience and hopelessness. And so he did not wait for us to make it to him. Instead, he came to us. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, why would God come and find us? If we're rebelling against him, we're, we're broken and distant from him, and we're choosing to say, God, I don't even believe you exist, or we have a, a totally wrong view of who he is, why would he seek after us? Why would he find us? And one is, I want you to see what it says there. His, he's rich in mercy. His mercy motivates him. God is rich in mercy. He, ha- he is not out looking for us to punish us. He is out looking for us to help us. He is not a God of I told you so. He's not coming to find you to say, I told you not to do this. He's coming to find you to help you. Because then we see, not only does his mercy motivate him, but then it's what? His great love. His love directs him. Like he, his love is moving him. God's great love is for you. You are the intended recipient of God's love. He remains, he, he desires for no one to remain lost. No one. He is out searching for those who need to be saved. He will and has done anything he can to help you find direction and hope. His love directs him. But then it says, finally, it is by grace. So his grace then flows from him. God doesn't just find you. He then wants to help you. He doesn't stand by and watch you struggle helplessly. He joins you and provides strength for you. So God, you start out lost, then God finds you. You're found. But here's what I love about our God. He doesn't just find us and look on and say, look, I, I found you. There you are. Look at how you're struggling. He does the next step, which is he rescues us. God rescues us. Once God finds us, he rescues us. This is the great part of the story. God doesn't just tell us how to get out of the situation. He doesn't just give us instruction. He actually rescues us 
from it. He reaches down and intervenes into our situation. Look at verses 6 and 8. It says this, He raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Listen to that imagery there. God reached down and lifted you up and sat you beside him in the heavenly places, at his side. God saw you. He saw that you need, he found you, and then he rescued you, and he lifted you up. Think about this for a minute. Sometimes we think helping people is simply pointing the way out for them. If you'll do this, your life will get better. Giving them clear instructions and directions, and if they don't choose to follow them, it's their own fault. This isn't what God does for us. He finds us helpless, blind, and hopeless, and he reaches down and raises us up. He takes us out of it and rescues us. When Natalie was, was very young, PJ was, PJ, how old were you? With the, PJ was three, so Natalie was one. We were at a friend's house, and uh, they had a pool outside, and they had an alarm on the door. And uh, so we, you could always hear, well, one, day the, one time the door did not get quite shut all the way. And so we were in there talking. All of a sudden, PJ comes in, and he says, Natalie is going under the water. And immediately, we jumped up. We go running out, and I see Natalie at the deep end of the pool, struggling to stay above water. Now, think about it for a minute. I'm going to tell you what I did in a moment. But how unloving and uncaring of a father would I have been if I would have just stopped there and said, Natalie... Just swim a little harder. Reach up. Grab. You can do it. I believe in you. Just try a little harder and you can get out. That's, that was the last thing from my mind. You know what I did? I dove into that water as quick as I could, swam to her, and came up underneath her and rescued her. Got her out of that. Sat her on the side of the pool. Even when I got to her, I didn't say, now it's your turn. Like, come on, do something. I was there to rescue her. That is what God does for us. He sees us lost, blind, helpless, and in need of hope. And he comes diving into us. He says, I'm here. There's nothing you need to do. I've done it all. And he provides his mercy and his grace. That is what being rescued means. And too often we as Christians in the church have turned the idea of being saved into something that we do. We say, if you do this, then God will save you. If you get your life right, God will save you. If you start coming to church, God will save you. If you start giving money, God will save you. If you start reading your Bible, saying prayers, God will save you. We turn it into something we do. Or we turn it into a list of things that we need to stop doing. Like I could have got mad at Natalie said, why did you jump in that pool? argue with her while she's still trying to to get out but we do that we we say look if you start cheating lying stealing then god will save you if you get your temper under control god will save you if you deal with your lust your greed and your pride god will save you i want you to hear this if we can do something to be saved then we don't need salvation salvation only comes when we learn how desperate in need we are salvation is totally the work of God. He reaches down, plucks us out of our lost state, and sets us on a different pathway. 
He gives us hope when we've been looking for hope in all the wrong places. He gives us peace and meaning and ultimate pleasure when we have been searching for it in every other place. The only thing we need to do is to respond. I was in Israel back in February, and we visited a a town very close to the Gaza Strip. And it was a town that regularly received, uh, you know, bombs from the Gaza Strip shot in there, just like pipe bombs shot over. And uh, they had bomb shelters and Uh, When the siren went off, they had seven seconds, seven to 14 seconds to get behind a bomb shelter or get inside. And they were teaching us. I didn't get to see this. Thank goodness while we were there. We didn't have a a bomb scare. But they say the children, they'll be out on the playground. And the children from a very early age are trained. As soon as they hear that siren, they do this. They put their arms up. Because they know they can't make it. They know they need to be rescued. They know somebody's got to come and get them. And that's what our, when we hear God call us and come to our rescue, all we got to do is respond. That's what rescue. And then I want to close with this last thought. God, once he rescues us, then we see in Ephesians 3, 13 and 14 that he accepts us. We're accepted. We don't go through this phase where we now have to prove ourselves to God or make things right. God has already done that. Look at verse 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. As soon as God rescues you, he brings you near. He doesn't put you in the back of the line. As a matter of fact, he, he brings you so close, it's like an embrace. He hugs you, puts you right next to him. He accepts you. He doesn't try to get you clean first. He doesn't worry about what has been. His love embraces you, and he accepts you. God, through the work and the sacrifice of Christ, has torn down this wall of hostility between us, and now we have complete access to God. And then this then comes the inheritance. The inheritance is not just being accepted or rescued. The, the idea is that we are accepted, and now we have a new home. You and I have a new home. Once we've been accepted, we come to realize that we are now, we're not just no longer lost, but we have a new dwelling place, a new home. We went from walking through life without hope, aimless, and fruitless, to now having a place that is ours, a place to call home, a place to belong. Look at verse 19 and 20. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and with the members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophet, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is the full demonstration of God's mercy, love, and grace. He not only accepts us, but he accepts us into his household and not as slaves and beggars and servants, but as fellow citizens and full members of his family. This is a place that we are known and that we actually own as well. We're part of it. We're not just visiting. This is our home as well. This new home with God is now something we can feel completely comfortable in. We're not going to get kicked out. We're not going to get evicted. The inheritance of God gives us this place to call 
home. Home. I don't know if you've ever been homeless. I never have been. And I can't imagine that feeling. I'm just wandering around. Nowhere to go. Nowhere to stop and relax and feel completely myself. Spiritually, I've been there. Spiritually, I've been homeless. I've walked around with no hope, no joy, no peace, and nowhere to go to find it until God reached down and rescued me and set me beside him in his home and said, this is now your home. This is my question for you today. Do you have a home? Do you have a home? Today is one of those teachings that I'm going to ask you to consider making a response to. Growing and understanding of God takes both education and action. It's not that we can just learn more about God. We do that, and that helps us. But at some point, we have to respond to God as well. And for many in here, you've been growing your understanding and your education of who God is. And today, I want to challenge you to take a step of action. I want to invite you to join your household and you with the household of God. I want to invite you to come home. And for this to happen, there must be a realization that you're lost. You're lost. I was lost. Maybe you're lost. But then also there's this realization that God has found you. You've been found. God's not out there trying to figure out where you are. He knows right where you are. Wherever you sit today, God knows. Spiritually, you may have been thinking you've run from him your entire life, but he's there with you. Realize that you have been found and you have been rescued, but also realize that you must respond in faith. To call out to him, to reach out and receive the rescue. It is a letting go of my personal desires and my pursuits, my hopelessness, my aimlessness, and my fruitlessness, and grabbing on to his truth. It is a turning from one life and a trusting in another. That's what salvation is. That's what Ephesians 2 teaches, is this inheritance is yours. These are the keys to my house. It's a key fob. It's not really a, a key. But I love that I have a place to go. And I love that I carry this with me. But for me to actually use this, I have to go to my home. To put it on the door and I have to open the door and go in. It's all already there. I have a bed to sleep in. I have a refrigerator with food. I have a place to sit and watch TV. I have family there. It's there. But I have to take the key that God has given me. I have to go to it. I have to receive it. And today, this morning, I believe God has given some of you a key. A key that you maybe have never had in your life to experience the fullness of his grace and his mercy through Christ. And today, I want to ask you to use that key to take a step in your life and to turn from sin and self and to trust Christ, his Savior and Lord. I ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. This is a moment not between you and me or you and your neighbor. This is a moment between you and God. There's not some special prayer to pray. There's not six steps to get back to God. Oh, it is so simple. 
It is so simple. It's reaching out and saying, God, I need you. God, I want you. God, save me. And this morning, in this moment, right now, I want to ask you if you've never done that, would you consider whether you're 10 years old or 40 or 80 years old, I don't care where you are in your stage of life, would you realize you're lost and you need help and reach out to God today?